Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon, Deputy Editor of the Irish Times. This is Confronting Coronavirus, a new daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. So, what happens in a workplace when a case of COVID-19 is confirmed? As you may know by now, the Irish Times had its first case of coronavirus on Sunday. So we are fast familiarising ourselves with the protocols involved. Today, the Irish Times building is closed for deep cleaning. We are following HSE guidelines on contact tracing and encouraging staff to follow the clinical advice on the HSE website. We're facing the challenge of producing our entire service from disparate locations, doing our best to continue to provide our readers with the service they've come to expect in print and online. Today's podcast is being brought to you from a series of undisclosed locations. It all feels quite mysterious and at times downright weird. We've heard a lot of worry and speculation about what's going to happen in the next few days, so we thought we'd ask our consumer affairs correspondent, Connor Pope, to fill us in. So, Connor, uh, rumours about a lockdown have been swirling on WhatsApp over the last few days. If a lockdown does actually come, as it has to varying degrees in other countries like China, Italy, Spain and Austria, what does that mean? And what does it look like in those countries? Okay, well, the first thing I'd say is that people need to remember they're not going to hear about any lockdown if it happens via WhatsApp. They're not going to hear about it via Twitter. They're not going to hear about it via Facebook. They're going to hear about it through the traditional news channels like the Irish Times, like RTE and like government sources. Because over the last 48 hours, there's been a huge amount of panic. And an awful lot of people have got very scared when they've heard talk of the army on the streets and martial law and all these various different things that are simply not true. So people just need to take a breath and gauge where they're hearing their information. And that's a very important point because that feeds into answering your question, which is the the, the real enemy in a lockdown scenario is panic and it is fear and it is hysteria. Now, the reality is that if things get worse, like they very well might get worse, well, then you will see more shops closing. You will be you will hear people telling you to stay in your home until we get through the worst of the crisis in order to flatten the curve, to use the, the phrase of the, of, the, of the day. That does not mean that life comes to a standstill. That does not mean that shops will be closed and people won't be able to buy food. That does not mean that all social interaction with your family will end. The reality is that even in Northern Italy, which is the worst impacted place in Europe and the worst impacted place in the world right now, and even in the Hubei province of China and in cities like Wuhan, when they were in the middle of the crisis, when the lockdown was at its most severe, people were still going out and they were buying the necessities they needed to feed themselves and to feed their families. So the one thing I would say to people is they need to not panic. We'll get through this. This is going to be, we're in an unprecedented um, situation. None of us have ever been here before, but it's not going to last forever and we're not going to run out of food. I guess it's clear that we, we are facing potential further restrictions and I think that is becoming clear uh, to people. Maybe not to the full extent of a lockdown, but but certainly there will be more uh, restrictions on people's sure. movement um, in, in, in the coming days. Um, what kind of things should we be thinking about and how should we react to that? Well, I, I think we're, we're, a lot of Irish people are already very well set up for any kind of lockdown type situation. 
most people have enough food in their uh, cupboards, in their fridges, in their freezers to keep them going for a long time. That's not to say they're going to be eating exactly what they want every day over the course of two weeks or whatever it might be. But people, a lot of people at least, have enough provisions in their homes to keep them going. And what we saw last week uh, on Thursday and Friday when there was this widespread panic buying across the supermarket chains, um, a lot of people were buying stuff that they will be able to use over the days and weeks ahead. I mean, so you're talking about an awful lot of people were buying dried goods, pastas, rices, tinned products. Um, a huge amount of people were buying toilet paper. Um, like, so people will be okay with, and I, I'm not talking about everybody because there's going to be very vulnerable people out there who are going to be in a very difficult position. Um, and those are the kind of people that we're, we need to look out for. Because when, you, when when I was in the supermarkets last week talking to people and just seeing what was going on, there were people being left behind. There was older people, there was people who were coming to the shops too late because they were working. And, you know, they're the kind of people that we need to be looking out for now. But, you know, the reality is, if we're told by the public health uh, professionals that we have to largely stay in our homes for a week or for two weeks so we can flatten the curve and we can stop the illness getting out of control as it has done in other parts of the world, well, then I think the vast majority of people will be able to cope with that. Whether or not they'll be able to cope with the boredom, on the other hand, is an entirely different question. So, Connor, I know we're telling people not to go out there and, and panic buy uh, supplies. Is there anything you would actually recommend people do buy? Well, I mean, it's always best practice to have enough food to feed yourself and your family for two weeks. Um, and like in the United States, when they've been, where they're in, in areas where they have to go through catastrophes and, you know, uh, on, a, on a routine basis where there's flooding or where there's hurricanes or whatever it might be, you know, in, in the midst of a crisis, you should have enough food to keep you going for two weeks. And I think if most people who are listening to the podcast were to look into their cupboards, they'd probably have that already. Because what you need is you need to be able to give yourself breakfast, lunch and dinner for, for a period of two weeks. Now, that's as I said, pastas, rices, tin products, all of those tins that you bought two years ago that you've never actually used and you've often wondered why you bought them. You know, people will be able to raid their cupboards, they'll be able to raid their freezers. And as I say, the vast majority of people will have enough to get by. Um, I don't think it's necessary today for people to be racing out to their supermarkets to start stocking up again. Because the one thing that's hammering the supply chain in this country is panic buying and um, people simply buying too much stuff. Um, a lot of people, tens of thousands of homes across the country will have bought enough stuff last week to keep them going for two or three weeks. So people just need to remember that we're going through a very difficult period. It's not going to last forever and we will get through it. But we need to have a degree of social solidarity and we need to have a degree of responsible shopping. So if you are in your supermarket, you don't buy all the tomatoes, you don't buy all the tins of tuna, you don't buy all the chickpeas because we need to have a shared goal here. And the shared goal is that everybody is fed, everybody is safe and we just get through this. Connor, have you seen um, in other countries where there have been these uh, incidences of panic buying and so on, has that created shortages or uh, any other unforeseen difficulties? Well, there isn't that many reports of 
shortages. In fact, there's no reports of shortages in northern Italy in terms of food supplies. People have enough um, and they're, they're in the midst of the crisis. Similarly, in uh, in China, where there, were, where there was a lot, a lot of shortages or a lot of uh, serious restrictions, there wasn't any reports of, of people desperate and people going without. Um, you know, so it just needs to be managed properly and it needs to be managed by both retailers and by consumers, um, and that's and that is the key message that it's a, it's going to be difficult, but we're going to get through it. And you don't need to buy everything in the shop because when you do that, you're putting intolerable pressure on the supply chain. And then other people see empty shelves, or they see shelves that are fast emptying, and they start to panic buy. And then you have a snowball effect, and things just get worse and worse and worse. What we don't want to see is the scenario that we've seen spreading uh, on social media of people fighting in supermarkets over basic goods. It's not necessary. It doesn't have to happen. Um, And we have to reassure everyone that there is enough to go around. So we have news of further travel restrictions today, including cancellation of flights by Ryanair and other airlines. Tell us a bit more about these restrictions and what they mean. Yeah, the travel industry, the airline industry in particular, has been absolutely destroyed by the current crisis. Uh, Ryanair issued a release this morning in which it said that it would probably have to ground all its fleet within the next seven to ten days. And it said that it anticipated it would be cutting its schedules by a massive 80% in April and May. Uh, IAG, the parent company that owns Aer Lingus, have said that they anticipate they'll have to cut their scheduled flights by 75% uh, over the same period between April and May. And almost every other airline in the world has said exactly the same thing. Um, They're also talking about being plunged into financial crises and an awful lot of airlines will go technically bankrupt in the weeks ahead. Now, that's not going to happen to an airline like Ryanair, which has an extraordinarily large pile of cash, but it is going to have a massive impact on travel. Um, The big question then, of course, for people is what do they do if they have flights booked leaving Ireland over the next uh, eight or ten weeks? Do they just write them off? What do they do next? Um, Obviously, if an airline cancels your flight, they have to give you a refund or they have to reroute you to to another destination. And that's the rule in, in normal times. But I think we're in a time of unprecedented crisis, to use the word that I've used already. And what we're seeing is airlines are offering people the chance to rebook a different flight at some point in the future. And they're not charging the booking fees. So that might help some people get over the the, the, the problems that they will be experiencing in April and May. It does remain to be seen what happens in June, July and August and whether or not summer holidays that people have planned, many many of them will have planned them for many months. It does remain to, see, to be seen whether those kinds of holidays will be able to go ahead. But certainly what's happening is that the tourism sector, both at home and overseas, is at the front line of the crisis. And that's where we're seeing the biggest immediate effects in terms of the economic aftersho- aftershocks. So is it not quite time to write off the foreign holidays for the summer? Well, I don't think people would need to... Be, I, I don't think people can be overly optimistic that their summer holidays in June, July or August will go ahead. But similarly, I don't think people need to be overly pessimistic because the reality is we don't know where we're going to be. We don't know what's going to happen in April, May, June. It may be that come July, 
the systems will be back to normal, airlines will be flying again and people who have their summer holidays booked for the peak season will be able to go on those holidays. Or it may be that that won't be the case. But I think right now what we should be focusing on is getting over the next week, 10 days, two weeks and we can worry about our holidays uh, in the summertime in the summertime. Thanks very much, Connor. Brilliant to listen anytime. Just give us a shout, okay? Health Editor Paul Cullen, we've heard uh, in the last couple of days that we have a surge of new cases coming. What can you tell us about that? Yes, everyone expects a big rise in the number of uh, cases reported by Ireland. Um, The simple reason for this is that we're going to test more people. There's a huge increase in demand for testing. There were hundreds of people uh, left on callback from Friday and we're moving to a new system of testing now today on Monday, which will lead to more people being tested and inevitably, because we know that the virus is circulating in the community, to more positive results from those tests. So the testing regime has ramped up significantly. Who needs to think about getting tested now? Well, the advice is that if you have onset new fever or cough, then you may have symptoms which are consistent with the virus. You may have, it's not necessary. You should consult your GP and you'll be advised whether you should be sent forward for testing. And where now will that testing take place? So as you know, at the very start of this uh, testing start happened, occurred in hospitals and then it was transferred uh, to taking place in people's homes but through paramedics in the National Ambulance Service. So now we're moving on to a system whereby some of that will still happen, but there are centres being opened up around the country where testing uh, will be carried out, and there's even talk about drive-in testing. But it's also the referral method has changed as well. It was the case before that if you felt you had symptoms, and of course there was a travel element in that which no longer applies, but if you felt you had symptoms, you contacted your GP, and your GP then had to contact public health and public health would make the decision about to refer you for testing, and that would be arranged by them. Now GPs are able to um, refer uh, people themselves for testing, and the way that they're doing that is changing today, and there have been teething problems because there is an electronic system um, called HealthLink, and it was overloaded this morning, or it wasn't working, it had an IT glitch. It's supposed to be sorted out today. Um, For the morning, I think the email system was being used, but basically... Um, every GP in the country, and there are thousands of them, will be able to refer patients um, directly for testing. And that is supposed to be carried out within 24 to 48 hours. So if a case of coronavirus is confirmed, contact tracing begins. What's your understanding of that process? Yeah, we have to see these two things as two sides of the one coin. The really two main things that we have to get right over the next few weeks. We have to test people, test more of them, test them more quickly. And then when we find that they're a positive case, we have to contact everyone that they've come into contact with in their recent past when they might have been symptomatic and transmitting the disease. So that needs to be ramped up. And I understand that they are training thousands of people to do this work from around the public service and beyond. Uh, And those teams will be tasked with tracing everybody who a particular person has been in contact with. So, for example, if a person falls ill at work um, and is tested positive, they self-isolate. They're out of the equation, but the race is on then to contact anybody that they were in. 
near and that's you know close contacts is what we're interested in that's people who were more than 15 minutes and within a distance of one to two meters so generally people who are sitting around in the same area and they have to be contacted uh, as quickly as possible and as many of those contacts have to be contacted how do we know contact tracing is working well, for contact tracing to be working, to really work and to start slowing the progression of the disease, you have to reach out to about 70% of people who've been in contact with a known case. Right? If you do that, you start slowing the progression of the disease, but you don't really kill it. If you get up to about 90%, if you're reaching 90% of known contacts and you're putting them into self-isolation, you start fighting back against the disease and it starts fizzling out. And that's called success. And that's where we have to get. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced the podcast today, and thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Happy St. Patrick's Day.